That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We've all heard some of the stories that he spread after Harold died. It's just despicable stuff. Now, and then I, okay, then you're, as you say, you look at the rest of his life. And I do believe that there was a calculated effort on his part to, to change his image. Hi, everybody. I'm Fran Spielman. Last week, an extraordinary era in Chicago politics ended, and rather quietly, not in the way the city council dean once predicted, as I've written, indicted Alderman Ed Burke, chose not to seek re-election to a record 14th term, including the two-year term, two term that was served after a special election to fill the vacancy created by his dad's death. And the ward that he chose not to run in is dramatically redrawn to eliminate his most favorable precincts. We at the Sun-Times cannot allow this era of Chicago politics to end so quietly. And so I've asked two of my esteemed colleagues to join me to talk about Ed Burke and his incredible run. Mark Brown, the terrific columnist for the Sun-Times, is with us, and so is investigative reporter extraordinaire Tim Novak. Thanks, guys, for joining us. Happy to be Ed here, Fran. Ed Burke chose not to do this. I think the amazing thing is how long he did choose to do it and how he overcame the odds four years ago, even though he had been charged briefly with a small part of the corruption investigation that is now part of an extortion indictment and a racketeering indictment that he faces in a trial that's going to come up next November. I take it that neither one of you were particularly surprised by this. I certainly wasn't. His wife, Ann Burke, the former state Supreme Court chief justice, retired, announced her retirement a few months ago. That was clear indication. And of course, the ward would have made it very difficult for him to win again. Mark, were you surprised? No, Fran, you had, you had laid it all out months in advance with, a, with an interview with Victor Reyes, who had helped Burke. He helped Burke in that election four years ago. And this time he was telling you that there just was no, no path for him. And so knew you had it nailed. But you, everybody was waiting because he is a stubborn man and a very prideful guy. And he doesn't want to give it up. He's not, the indictment isn't what's making him give it up. It's the fact that he had lost power and his fellow aldermen gave him up. 
in the map you're saying in the map yes yeah map, well, by taking garfield ridge the area around midway airport and giving it over to silvana tabaris in the 23rd ward burke really lost his most favorable precincts tim were you surprised no no i actually was surprised he ran the last time but that map was obviously still favorable to him but i think the hard thing that he's struggling with these days is his identity because if he's not on the city council anymore, if he's not pulling all these wheels, is he still Ed Burke? I think that's a hard thing to come to grips with. Yeah, he's approaching his 79th birthday. I'm sure that, and I know that retirement is a difficult adjustment for anyone, but this guy loved the trappings of power, just adored it. The bodyguards, the special treatment, the be- the chauffeured car, the being driven around, Mr. Chairman, all of the trappings of power. He loved it. He would show up to the city council versus the media softball game in a three-piece suit. He was such a, he just loved it. I don't think I've ever seen anyone who loved it more. Mark, did you ever see yeah, that well, side? Uh- Of course, yes. Just the other night, he was the center of attention at the Irish Fellowship Club, which is a group that has always had him high up in its ranks. A couple months ago, I went to a very private memorial service for former Governor Thompson, and who should be there but Ed and Ann, acting like it was, life was normal, right? People crowding around him, and a guy who's under indictment usually is considered radioactive, right? But, and I know you've also written about how at the city council meetings, he had been forced to take a step back, but he clearly was still, he still got a lot of friends and he still wanted to be out there circulating and feeling the adulation of being who he once was. Yeah, it's amazing to me that he made the adjustment to Joe Blow Alderman, even though this was so terribly important to him to be front and center at the meetings, running everything, reminding everybody about Robert's rules of order, point of contention, a point of whatever. He was the ringleader. He was the one who introduced more legislation than anybody. Tim, were you surprised that he was able to be Joe Blow Alderman for four years? It had to be a big blow to his ego, but but most times you kind of forget that he's there. I don't cover the council meetings, so you, you, you don't hear him. You don't see him. He's just faded into the background, which is really something that no one would ever expect Ed Burke to be comfortable with, being in the background. Let's talk a little bit about his extraordinary career. He goes to Quigley Seminary. He takes the police exam, finishes ninth out of 546 So he's a smart guy. He gets a plum assignment to the state's attorney's office police. So he really was not a beat cop. He was a guy behind a desk. Then his father dies of lung cancer at 57, and he takes his place, sworn in at age 26, the second youngest alderman in the history of Chicago. 72, he's part of the Young Turks with Ed Verdoliak. This is interesting because my husband, Dick Stone, my late husband, covered the early days and the Richard J. Daly era. And he always used to tell me that Burke, when he came into the council, Dick identified Burke as the follower and Verdoliak as the leader. 
Vertoliak as the smarter and more gutsy of the two, the real plotter, the political chess man, and Burke followed his lead. That pretty much carried through, didn't it, Mark? Yes, I would say back in those days, we got the nicknames Fast Eddie for Verdoliak, and then some people were calling Burke Slow Eddie. But when you really, I think when you really look at it over the length of their careers, Burke was much shrewder in his own way about how he protected his power, unlike Verdoliak, who ran off to the Republican Party when he thought that was, that was where he could outmaneuver Washington, Burke hung in there. And in the long run, I would bet he made as much money as Verdoliak, which, in my opinion, is what they both were most interested in all along. Yeah. And so far, Burke hasn't gone to the slammer. Verdoliak has been there twice. So I would say the difference between them is the impetuousness. The he wasn't Verdoliak was not patient enough to wait. Had he been patient enough to wait instead of leaving the party, he would have been the acting mayor of Chicago after Harold Washington's death, but he was gone by then. How did you see, Tim, the difference between Verdoliak and Burke? It seems like there's a bit of a tortoise and a hare analogy here, isn't there? That Verdoliak wasn't willing to uh, just slow down, take it slow. Burke was more slow and steady wins the race. But in the end, I do think that, I think Burke's fall is harder and farther than Verdoliak's fall because Verdoliak was already out of power politically when he fell. Burke's fall is taking everything away from him. And I, 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 I don't think he ever thought that was going to happen. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that both of them dodged so many federal investigations and managed to come out unscathed, even though they were the center of investigations over the years up until their downfalls, that there were rumors constantly that both of them were helping the governments in some kind of way. Do you believe that was true ever, Mark? Do you? And Tim, do you? Mark, you start. On that business, I never really know. I wouldn't put it past him, but I, that is something that's talked about. I guess I always heard it talked about more with Verdoliak than with Burke. The idea being that they would be, they would trade off being sources of information for a get out of jail free card. I don't really much believe in that. Certainly here for the end, they just were both, they were guys that they wanted to get and I both greedy men, uh, and I always made, had the assumption that Burke was a little more subtle about it than, than came out on these uh, secret tapes of Danny Solis. In the end, it is what we thought it was, and probably worse. Yeah, that's the thing. Everybody thought that Madigan and Burke were so careful, so subtle in the way they approached things, that that their law practices were some kind of protection that it's not like a two-bit alderman who, where you pay them with a, in a brown paper bag of full with cash, that they had a law firm that they could get legal fees and it all looked so legitimate. But in the end, the tapes made Burke look very overt. 
very brazen in the way he approached or allegedly approach these clients. I want your business. If they can go F themselves, if they don't, they'll never get on my agenda. Did we land the tuna? All these comments that he made that were so unsettle, they were brazen. Tim, were you surprised by that? No, I always felt that both Madigan and Burke were shakedown people, that they shook people down for this business, that there's really no reason that people would hire them except for their clout. There's a variety of law firms in town that can do this work. And the work is really just being able to access clout. There's no really secret to a lot of these appeals. They're done, they're done based on clout. They've always been done that way. One that really struck me the most was when Burke was representing Trump Tower, when Donald Trump hired Ed Burke. How and why would Donald Trump come to town and hire Ed Burke? Why didn't he hire Madigan? Why didn't he hire one of the other dozens of clouded firms? But somehow he picked Burke. Burke was part of that power structure. At the same time Trump was picking Burke, Trump was also doling out business to Daly's people. So somehow somebody, some Sherpa, gave Trump the idea of who to hire. And for whatever reason, that was Burke over Madigan. Did you and believe, did you believe that Burke and Verdoliak, either one of them, were informants for the federal government at any point? Me? Yeah. I, I think everyone is capable and of being a rat in their parlance. I think that they would do anything they could to save themselves. And if it required pointing the finger at somebody else, I think they would do it. Whether they have or not, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past any of them to push somebody else in front of the bus is what we're talking about. Now, the Young Turks period of Burke's existence with Verdoliak, the coffee rebellion against Richard J. Daly, that was rather extraordinary because of the power of the man they were going after. But that was Verdoliak more than Burke, wasn't it? I think so. I don't think Burke would have done that without Verdoliak. Mark? I just honestly got to confess that one was before I got on the scene and I didn't witness it firsthand. But again, that's Dick's, Dick Stone's, my late husband's theory about Burke initially, at least, being the follower in that relationship. And that carried through to the period where Burke was led on a suicide mission for a state's attorney to try and stop Richard M. Daly from becoming state's attorney and making his move that ultimately led to City Hall. Why in heck would Burke allow himself to be used that way? Tim, were you surprised by that? Back then, I was just a very young reporter. I always thought that whenever Rich Daly was to be on the ballot, it was because he was anointed to be the winner. And he did win that race. Handily. I really understood. Yeah, I never really understood why Burke mounted that challenge. I, I guess maybe that was part of the Burke Verdoliak tandem where they were trying to maybe blunt the future of Richard M. Daly. Yes. Um, it was very poorly done. And Verdoliak was the party chair at the time, and Byrne was desperate to stop Richard M. because Jay McMullen, her husband, led her on this feeling that Daly was the boogeyman. He was the one that was going to assume his rightful place 
on the throne. They had to stop him. And somehow they talked Ed Burke into doing that. Amazing to me that he did. Now, he, he, he ahead, had been friends since before then, right? Yeah. And, and when they were younger men, I found some, I found a letter in Richard J's effects at the UIC that was a letter from, from Burke to Old Man Daly sucking up. I think this was in the period, I mean, before he got on the council. And it was clear from this, this letter that I, maybe Rich had driven Ed to the, to, to the to airport. Or to Did go they to drive together duty? to law school too? Didn't they drive I, together to law school every day I, or for a I while? Think that I, yes, I think that's I, yes, I think that's something like that's the case. I, I never had that was just that was a weird thing. And we usually come to think of in those kind of races that a candidate is who's in there, a race like that has been talked into it by the guy who's supposed to win. But I don't. I, that obviously wasn't the case that time. And it's even more extraordinary that he did this for Byrne when you go back a few years and say that. Byrne accused Burke of being part of this cabal of evil men that rigged or greased a cab fare increase. And then she cuts her deal with Burke and Vidoliak to run the council. So it goes to, to Burke's feeling, as he always says, that there are no permanent friends or enemies in politics, only permanent interests. And he's shifted with the winds on that one. Now, let's go to council wars. This period of time, was an extraordinary period. Once again, playing to the theory that Burke is the follower, Vidoliak is the leader, because he allowed, Burke allowed himself to be used and to be the absolutely more extreme of the two, saying and doing racist things to try and stop Harold Washington. He was so extreme during that period. It is amazing that he managed to overcome that in any kind of way. What do you remember, Tim, about that period of time and the extremism that Ed Burke showed? I remember Harold always saying that Verdoliak was was just greedy, that it was strictly about green. It wasn't black and white with Verdoliak. It was just green. But Harold insisted that Burke was a racist. I do remember from back then, I do think Dick's analysis was right. Everybody just saw Burke as Verdoliak's henchman, and maybe that was the role he needed to play, was to play the race car. Yeah, and it's amazing. Do you believe, Mark, that he really was a racist because he has spent the last several decades trying to overcome that, including the extraordinary adoption of baby T, raising Trav, who is now, I guess, in his 30s, which dates us all. But did that start out to be a calculated thing? Did it subsequently develop and change Burke in an extraordinary way? What do you think? I got to tell you that I truly believe back in those council war years and seeing Burke up close and personal, that it was that he was definitely a racist. I can remember him coming into that press room to talk about Clarence McClain. And I just, I can just remember how his face got so florid. It just, and, and we've all heard some of the stories that he spread after Harold died. It just despicable stuff. 
Now, I, and then I, okay, then you're, as you say, you look at the rest of his life. And I do believe that there was a calculated effort on his part to, uh, to change his image. Now, they did, Travis, I think his, feels very good about his adoptive parents from what I've seen. And I think he felt like he got a good treatment from them. So I don't think he feels used. So I don't, so I, I have to, I'll give him that one. I don't know. I, it's a, it, it, can a person change? I do think a person can change. It came out of a racist setting down there in, the, in that, in his ward and didn't have to be that way, but certainly he seemed to calm down over the years and, and made a lot of friends in the African-American community, or at least on the city council. What do you think? Having just seen the uh, Harold Washington documentary, Punch Nine, having lived through that, having grown up here, um, I do think at that time, Ed Burke personified a lot of white people in the city. White people were scared when Harold was running. They thought the end was coming. Epton before I, it's too late, they said. Epton before it's too late. It was. And if you look at that, the Sunday Mass at St. Pascal's Church, how very raw and vile. That was pretty much how a great deal of the city felt at that time. This was something that they never expected would happen, and they were afraid. We had been told at the time that people would move out of the city and all sorts of dire consequences would happen. And I think Burke was just part of that theory that the city would come to a crashing halt. Now, has he changed over time? I do think that he changed, but so did the city in that a lot of people did end up realizing that it was okay that the mayor was black. It was okay that black people were gaining a greater share of power. But that was something that people were very afraid of at the time because they assumed that they would be mistreated. And I don't know that they really were. He threatened to run for mayor against Daly, again, the calculated side of Burke. And the whole thing was really to get him restored to the Finance Committee chairmanship, which he did. He negotiated with Bill Daly, dropped out of the mayor's race and supported Daly. Richard M. Daly and Burke had a over the years, they started with a friendship as young students at DePaul, whatever, law school, but they did have a rivalry and they had an accommodation during Daly's tenure, his record setting tenure as Mayor Richard M's, that don't mess with me. I won't mess with you. I know what you're up to. You know what I'm up to. We both know we could both bury each other if we talked about the skeletons in each other's closet but we will have this detente because both of us could bring each other down. Did you read it that way, Mark? Oh, yes, absolutely. And, um, and you would still see, and, I, and you, understand, you know this stuff better than I do, but I would see it. You would still see Burke working through other people to right. try to embarrass Daly. Yes. And so if you and I could spot it, then the dailies could spot it. And it always went, well, like, okay, that's, a, that's, it's allowed as long as he's working through somebody else. And I don't want, I, I thought before the our, our show here, whether I should name names on that, but maybe that's not 
maybe that's not right, but I can think of several Ottoman, and even going up to now where I still see things happen. And they're from guys who they're, they're smart, but they're not quite as smart as Ed Burke. And they don't quite know, they don't quite do all the research and everything. And you know that Ed Burke has got people that are telling him what's going on and how to embarrass somebody. And Lightfoot has said that. He's still the heavy hand behind some mischief, not as much. He had the role of J. Edgar Hoover in the city council. He had a dossier on everybody. He knew where the bodies were buried. He knew where the pressure points were. He knew how to embarrass people, et cetera. He doesn't do it quite as often anymore, but he was the guy with the intelligence network that knew what was going on. What do you think about the Burke daily detente, Tim. I saw two instances where it flared up. The first time I saw it was when we did the story, a higher truck story on the female-owned trucking company that was run by Burke's right-hand man, Pete Andrews, who's also in, under indictment with Burke. Uh, Andrews's wife and another man's wife were the uh, fronts for this trucking company. And when we wrote the story that uh, that this large company in the program had these ties to Burke, Burke immediately pointed the finger at Daly that Daly somehow <laughs> was responsible for us knowing that, <laughs> which is not true. But then there was the second time when we were doing a story on people who were on workers' compensation. And for years and never having to get off and spending their eternity on it. And when we wrote that story, Burke accused Daly of being behind that story. So those were two pressure points that I think was part of what you're talking about, the detente. And when we wrote about them, Burke immediately blamed Daly for those stories. So it was always right there. That animus was in the jealousy was always right there under the surface. Burke probably thought he was smarter than Daly, wished he could have become mayor, never could. And rich to the manor born. And Burke kind of felt like he would be selling shoes if not for his last name. Let's talk about some of the investigations that Burke dodged before they finally nailed him, at least in terms of a sweeping extortion indictment. The ghost payrolling in the 1990s all thought that they had Burke. You had Alderman Joe Martinez on the payroll of the Finance Committee working for Burke's law firm. He then provided the information. Somehow, Burke dodged that one, blamed a dead man, Horace Lindsay, for that. The ghost payrolling that went on, Operation Haunted Hall. How the heck did he ever dodge that one? Mark, Tim? <laughs> I don't. I, the dead man defense is really one of the best defenses you can ever you can ever use. I'm sure he was he's trying to if he would probably like to use it in his current case. There's just too many people that would need to die. But and I'd forgotten uh, Horace Lindsay's involvement because he was a good man. I liked him. But yeah, I can't even remember uh, that one. Uh, all but yes. I th there, there were so much that seemed to dead to rights in that one, and she dodged it. It's, the whole ghost thing is a tough case to make, and he's a guy that was probably always smart with having deniability. Yeah, and then in the 1990s, Tim, the journal corrections after the fact where he votes 
for airline things that involve his airline clients and some other people. And then he, after the fact, corrects the record and says that he didn't vote, that he voted present or that he took a pass on those votes the way he should have. Amazing that he was able to do that. And that's what made it's so unusual to the finally that it took a Danny Solis wearing a wire for two years to set Burke up and to nail him in these meetings. I mean, we're hearing now that there are dozens and dozens of tapes, audio and video. That's what made it so extraordinary that they finally did this. Even the Trump representation, he it, it showed a tone deafness of Burke representing a majority Hispanic ward and thinking that somehow his constituents would think it was okay for him to represent Donald Trump. How do you think they finally were able to nail Burke, at least in an indictment, Tim? We've always believed that those kinds of cases can only be made by somebody wearing a wire. We could never prove what Ed Burke was doing with his law business or Madigan for that matter, that they would like solicit, almost strong arm people to hire their firms. It did need to take Danny Solis wearing a wire. The, and I don't even think we have seen the magnitude of that yet, because I don't think that Danny was only wearing a wire on Ed Burke. But what do you mean then? If, what do you mean about that? If there are 90 videos of over 100 hours with Ed Burke, who else was Danny recording? It wasn't just one. It wasn't just one alderman. We know he was also recording Mike Madigan. So, who else is there? You think there's, there's someone who hasn't been charged yet? I think there's a few that haven't been charged yet. Oh wow. Okay. And do you want to venture to say who? No, no, I don't. <laughs> okay. And then we've got to talk about the extraordinary impact that this whole thing had on Lori Lightfoot's election. She would not be mayor today. She would still be languishing in the single digits on the verge of dropping out of the 2019 mayor's race if it hadn't been for the butcher paper on the glass doors of Ed Burke's office, the raid that was timed right before Voters went to the polls months before, and then she is, the Sun-Times does its front page endorsement of her, and she becomes the anointed one, and everybody else is tied to Burke. It is amazing that this politician, who Lightfoot had fought with for years, who she despises, and he despises her back, that this is the reason why Lori Lightfoot is mayor of Chicago. Do you disagree with that, Mark? No, I, I absolutely. I think that's exactly what happened. And I will give Lightfoot credit. She recognized that by standing up, and here was a here was an opportunity to stand up a, a way that would clearly def, differentiate herself from Tony Preckwinkle, who had allowed the Burks to host a fundraiser for her, which was a terrible oversight in retrospect and wasn't, didn't feel like she could speak out against Burke. And I, I don't know, she made the right moves in that regard. And I do think that's who Lightfoot is. She didn't like those guys. And, uh, and the feds, the, and the feds who are her former colleagues helped in the sense that they threw in that $10,000 contribution into the initial Burke charges that the Burke had muscled from the Burger King guy 
for Preckwinkle, even though Preckwinkle knew nothing about it. Tim, you agree, don't you, that Lightfoot would not be mayor of Chicago if not for all? I'm not sure that she wouldn't have won without this, but this certainly was crucial to her victory. But I think at that point, weren't people just looking for somebody who wasn't in the middle of all of this stuff? And she had that position. Now, clearly, this gave her the ability to demonstrate it, that I don't have anything to do with these guys. And there was also the Preckwinkle fundraiser that came out that the Burks had held for her. So she was, uh, Lightfoot was a, in the right place at the right time, everything converged on her. The seas parted for her. As we wrap up, let's talk about, we have to talk about Burke's impact on legislation because he has had an extraordinary impact. He was forward thinking enough to champion, and again, his father's death at the age of 53 of lung cancer, the idea of banning indoor smoking in restaurants. He is almost singularly responsible for that. Carbon monoxide detectors required. He had something, the metal detectors at airports. He has done a tremendous amount. Many times he would follow the guy in New York, the city council president, Peter Vallone, I think was his name. Burke was a follower in that sense, but he was very much impactful on legislation, the ban on phosphates that he joined Mike Blandick and proposing. So his impact on legislation and the way Chicago looks today is extraordinary, isn't it? He was definitely took his job seriously. And I confess that when when he first did start doing some of the serious legislation, I thought it was more what we call fetcher material, that he was just putting stuff out there that seemed a little outrageous for the times. And he was hoping for, he was open for business, but he closed the deal on those things. Times came around and and he was right. I do think he can point to that when, uh, when they, uh, when they write the real obituary. Yeah. And outlawing nudity in massage parlors, they called it Burke's law. Tim, what do you think about his impact on legislation? I think there have been tremendous advances in laws and that he's behind them, as you pointed out. I still wonder what he got out of it. <laughs> <laughs> you cynic. Of course you are a cynic. You're paid to be. You're paid to be. In the end, how will Ed Burke be remembered? Mark? A crook? <laughs> Uh, he'd be remembered remembered as a crook. I'm sorry. I that I think that'll be he'll be on he'll be on on those lists that we put together every time an alderman's indicted or a public official. And it's more comp- in truth, it's more complicated than that. But that's how I think he'll be remembered. And so you're predicting that he will be convicted, Tim. What do you think? What how will the record show? What will the record say about Ed Burke? I think he might go down as a greater scoundrel than Hinky Dink McKenna. I think we're going to not know the full impact of all this. He still has all these people out there. How many judges in Cook County are beholden to Ed and his family and Ed and his machine? And how many employees? There's a tremendous amount of people out there who still owe their being to the Burke. Yeah. I just think that his impact on this city will never be forgotten, good, bad, or indifferent. 
and we will never see the likes of him again for sure. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us to to get behind the story and talk about some of the things that maybe people have have missed over the years that only we and our huge mem memories, because we're so old, understand. Thank you so much, guys. Have a wonderful holiday. Happy New Year. And we will see you next week. Thanks, Fran. Thanks, Fran.